Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. The big thing that was a breakthrough for me when I moved to Ferrite that was a big cost saver even in those early days when I was having to stumble through editing was something that I had never had before in Adobe Audition. Any track that you have in Ferrite, if you click and highlight the track and then touch it again, you get the little pop-up menu of what you can do to the track. There's lots of options. One of the options is strip silence. This was unbelievable. The idea that I could automatically remove everything below that threshold of sound. I've got one client. They have three shows a week. And they're all shows about TV. It's just literally like three buddies getting together to talk about a TV rewatch. Do you have any idea how much dead air is in one of those episodes? Raw? Like a lot. And I can take all of that out effectively in an automated way. Save myself minutes and minutes and minutes, which when you're editing audio, you know if it's one minute of audio, then it's two minutes worth of work to deal with. Welcome back to iPad Pros. I'm really excited to introduce our guest in this episode. I've never had such a great time recording an episode as this one. Joel is a full-time podcaster who produces all of his episodes with Ferrite on his iPad Pro. I learned a number of invaluable things from Joel during this episode, including discovering Bruce Free, an amazing noise removal tool that is proving to be just an incredible tool in cleaning up audio from many of the sources I need to deal with on a daily basis. We also discussed many logistics and working for the iPad and why the iPad is his primary computer. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did recording it. Before we get started, I just want to quickly mention again that iPad Pros now has a Patreon over at patreon.com slash iPadPros. The Patreon is the best way you can support the podcast, and you'll also get some bonus content by doing so. Once again, that's patreon.com slash iPadPros. I hope you'll check it out. Without further ado, here's my interview with Joel. Enjoy. I'm here today with Joel Sharpton of iPadPodcasting.com. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, man. So you came across my radar on one of the podcasting Facebook groups here, and you mentioned you do some podcasting from iPad in that group, I believe, and that's kind of started the conversation between us about what you have for your setup and how you podcast on iPad, and I found out you actually run a consultancy helping others do this, so I wanted to have you on to kind of dive into all this. Yeah, thanks, man. My history of audio, uh, with the iPad anyway, starts with the launch of the very first one. I've had the iPhones since the iPhone 3G. I didn't have the first one second year, though. I was there day one lining up. And with the iPad, when the first one launched, actually, <laughs> I talked my boss at the time. I worked for a small radio station group, and I talked him into ordering it for the station. And I said, you know, we need this device. It's going to be great. We can do sales calls with it. We can do all sorts of trainings and presentations, and it'll be a better platform to look at our apps on as well. So we were building apps for the stations. I said, this is great. We can blow them up, and you and I can really see and use them and talk back and forth and share them and explain to our clients and our listeners how you can use them. What ended up happening was my kids and I played a lot of games on that first iPad. <laughs> as soon as I had the iPhone, but definitely when you saw the big flat screen of the iPad, that first 9.7-inch screen, and you thought, boy, with a canvas this large, I really feel like I could do anything. And, I mean, I don't know if you remember those early days of the App Store, but it really seemed like anything was possible. It seemed mm -hmm. it, it very much mirrored the personal computer revolution of my childhood and infancy. Even before I could remember, you know, that's when personal computers were first starting getting into people's homes. My family had our first 
personal computer, I think, when I was about 10 or 11. And it seemed like the world was suddenly available. And the iPad seemed like that large of a revolution again. And I thought, there's got to be a way to record and produce high-quality audio on here. So very early on, I was toying with audio apps. But it wasn't until a little over a year ago, and the combination of things happened. First of all, the continued evolution of an app called Ferrite, which I, I know you use, don't you, Tim? Yeah, fantastic app. Okay, so the Ferrite Recording Studio, that app, I had played with it from its launch, but there were lots of things that it was missing. One of the things that was missing was MP3 export. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there was some patent. Yeah, there was a, there were some patent encumbrances on the MP3 codec, and he wasn't going to pay it, and he wasn't going to do it in a sort of quasi-legal way. There were some other apps that started using the MP3 codec ahead of time before the patents all expired, but they were in a sort of morally and legally gray area. He just wasn't going to do that. Developer for uh, Ferrite wasn't going to do that. That was part of the problem, though. But until they were able to export MP3s, I felt like it was limited in its usefulness. The other big thing was that you couldn't upload an audio file. So like an MP3, you couldn't upload that into the file picker from Safari into a regular media host. So something like a Libsyn or a Blueberry, if you log into your back end and you're trying to upload your podcast episode, it wouldn't work properly on the iPad because you couldn't go to a file picker. Yeah, you'd have to do the, what, FTP upload back in the early days and use some kind of app to do it. Exactly. There were some services with APIs. So for instance, like you could have used a workaround with Alphonic. You could have sent files to a Google Drive or a Dropbox folder, pulled them into Alphonic and then shot them from Alphonic to your media host but that's no longer necessary as the middle step if you want to you can go directly to safari click upload a file and then you get choices one of them is the photo picker like it used mm -hmm. to be but the other one is to go to the files app so you can go through that all the way to google drive and dropbox even if you want to yeah and you can even do uh you can drag and drop safari supports drag and drop i use pippa as my uh host for ipad pros and i'm dragging and dropping from my dock from the files if you long tap and just dropping it in there without going through any kind of hierarchy. It's great. Exactly. But that opened up the availability that you could access those files and then use them even in Safari. And so as soon as that was available in beta, I loaded it up on the device that I had at the time, which was an iPad Air, the original iPad Air. And I tested it and I said, yep, I can do this. And so the next thing that I did was I ordered the forthcoming iPad Pros. They were not available at that date that I decided to do this, but I ordered the new 10 and a half inch iPad Pro. Gotcha. Since that device has been out and I've had it in my hands. I have edited literally every podcast episode that I've edited, which is not only my own, but also my clients. And I work a couple of dozen recurrent clients. And all of those episodes are edited and produced on an iPad using Ferrite since that day. That's awesome. So iPad Pro is what did for you. It was more the OS, though, that is what really uh, enabled all this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, I could still be doing this on the iPad Air, realistically, if yeah. that's what I had to do. It would just be a lot slower. Yep. Now that I know that this is what I want to do, I want a larger iPad. I, I have kept myself from upgrading mid-generation. I'm waiting for the new releases, and then I'm going to move to whatever the larger size is. The 12.9 inch is the rumor. They're not going to uh, change that size supposedly but i would love to have a 27 inch ipad on my desk you know that i could lean down in easel mode realistically yeah, yeah that'd be great i hope we get there one day desktop sized uh, devices that we can just leave there and we've got our smaller ones for when we need to do that as well so i remember back in the early days of ipad you could hook a yeti up to my uh, dock connector and it output enough power to, to actually drive that i think i was five or six downgraded the output so you'd need like external power to hook up mics uh, what's kind of your setup these days for 
hooking up mics to iPads and have you experienced uh, that that kind of shift over the years with what you're using? So first of all, you make a good point there. In the early days, you could, in fact, hook up with the USB adapter. You could hook up a USB mic or, or certain ones anyway, the lower power ones, and you could get it working. And then they broke it along the way. Yeah. <laughs> I was not trying it on a regular basis when they broke it. And so when I began to hear podcasters say they were looking forward to the new changes that were going to allow for external microphones, I was like, what are you guys talking talking about i used microphones years ago and i had it was just exactly the scenario that you experienced so i was doing live broadcasts for local radio shows this one show in particular we had like a saturday morning sports show and we were working remotely we were in a like a coffee shop and broadcasting the show back from the studio of course we were taking calls, so we were taking calls over the phone line and over Skype was the idea that we were trying to do more of because Skype was a higher quality. Yeah. And we were also streaming this show live online, too. The challenge was laid to me, can't we do this all from an iPad? <laughs> <laughs> and I tried for about a year and a half and I've got actually some photos. If I can find some of them, I might even send them to you to post, post yeah, in the show great. notes or something. But I have photos of these like Franken devices that I would create where I would put together like an iRig Pro device with some third-party mixer. And then there would be headphones to monitor the thing too, right? And yeah. those would come out of a different device. Anyway, it would be this daisy chain of things. And it would sort of like halfway work like we wanted to, but there would always be some hitch in the giddy-up. And I do feel like, honestly, as a person who promotes iPad podcasting, th that is still true today. For instance, uh, I'm assuming that you are using at least one iOS device during this call. I'm speaking to you on Skype on an iPad, but I'm not recording my side of the call anyway with an iPad. I'm having to use a secondary device. Now, that could be a phone. In my case, it happens to be an iMac. Yeah, I use the Zoom H6 as external recorder. It's exactly right, external recorders. But the point is that unlike with a Mac... You and I can't have this call and both get high-quality audio without some hitch in the giddy-up, so to yeah. speak. The one exception being if we used Ringer. If you and I were using a paid service, a software, and honestly, I, I like the guys at Ringer, but it is a lower-quality audio, I think, than recording directly to your own device. Yeah, and I think uh, Anchor is the newcomer that's doing that now as well. I have not dove in really headfirst to Anchor, but Anchor does support that. It's a double-ender. Yeah, I'm not sure how the recording works. I know it is recording through Anchor's kind of network and probably server side is my guess. I don't know if it's local on the devices or how that how it all pieces it together. Well, you know, the the two iOS experts here will have to do some research when we when we get off the air for maybe yeah. a future episode. That is something I want to look into. I'll have to try out Anchor and see what their current situation is. But anyway, so that's a problem. And I keep hoping year to year that, that Apple will fix it. It doesn't look like there's any real changes in iOS 12. Last year... They opened up the beginnings of the APIs for WebRTC, which is one of the things that we would really need to make this happen. That's one of the paths to making it happen. They started down the path, but they didn't finish it. And that's why you don't see apps like Zencaster working on Safari in your iPad or iPhone. Mm -hmm. That's not going to change this year either. I'm a little disheartened at that, honestly, if I'm telling you the, t the truth, Tim. Yeah. Um, but... My current setup is this. I mostly do my own podcasting either solo, locally, 
or I do, even if I do a, a duo show, most of them tend to be local. The one exception is I have this podcast personally that I record about Anne Rice and the Vampire Chronicles, her, her books and forthcoming TV show. My co-host records her own show onto her device directly. And so we just share the files afterwards as you and I are doing for this recording. Gotcha. Double-ended. So yeah. my hardware is this. That was a long and rambling intro to my hardware. Yeah, it's, it's uh, relevant, though, to, to know just the software situation on Mac. You have like Audio Hijack Pro and stuff like that. Take advantage of. Yeah, you can solve it all in software, basically, and you can't do any of that really on, on iOS. And now that I've invested in the Zoom H6, I think I'd probably prefer it this way just because I, I trust hardware more than I do software. But to, to your point, it should be able to be possible in software so you don't have to invest in the $300 recorder. Well, especially like the closer that the machines get to each other, like when you compare the power and the capabilities of the iPad, the current generation iPad Pro and like the MacBook, for instance, it's hard for you to make the argument on why one device is capable of doing certain things with audio and the other device isn't when the processor power is is differentiated. Yes, but it's differentiated in the other direction. You know, the right. iPad is actually more powerful than the MacBook, the MacBook. So to that, that end as well, uh, Joel, I kind of believe that streaming my screen to the web is almost easier on iOS now. There's like apps where I can just hit a button and within seconds I'm streaming the YouTube with that new uh, screen recording mm. uh, streaming thing. So there's weird things where, like, as a content creator, I can now stream my screen uh, pretty easily to the web. You know, you can easily do it on the Mac, of course, but it is all uh, the developer building out that in their app itself um, versus the API. And it proves the falsehood that it's any technological limitations or, like, power limitations that are keeping us from that. If the video API can be so open to allow screen recording in the way that it currently does, then you should be able to. And look, I understand part of it is a privacy concern, but there are plenty of things that Apple does already to allow for a confirmation of, you know, do you really want to allow your microphone or to be captured yeah. in this way, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Give me the opt-ins and let me check the boxes and then allow me to record any audio from anywhere on my dadgum iPad. Right. It's my, you know, I'm paying $1,200 for one now, just like a MacBook. Yeah. Get, let, me, let me do what I want to with the audio. I'm hopeful. Again, I'm hopeful. A couple of years ago, Audiobus was a big name. GarageBand adapted it. Audiobus 3 came out this summer. It seems to be only music applications, though. Uh, Skype's not getting on board. Do you know much about Audiobus? I was excited when it was announced, and I thought, well, this is our answer. But just as you said... I think that Apple has been very clear that VOIP apps are not allowed to use it effectively. Like that may not be in the letter of their requirements or their qualifications for the different APIs, but it is in practice what is the case. Now, the big players like Skype, for instance, don't want to. Because you can see what Microsoft is doing with Skype is they're trying to close some of the loops, in fact, instead of making it more of an open system, which I don't understand that, but that's a different conversation for a different day, I suppose. Yes, I think technologically, Audiobus could work for this. It's clear to me from the way that it has played out in the market that Apple is not allowing it to be used for that, or some of the smaller players would already have. So back to that hardware question. So you start, everything starts with the USB 3 to camera adapter, right? You got to buy that. So you start with that. And then for me, I go to either if I'm only doing solo recordings, I really find that there's no reason to move beyond the ATR2100. It's a great USB microphone. I have mine on a boom arm, and I use a pop filter, of course. It's got a shock mount that it sits in so that, you know, 
even if I hit the desk or something, that's not going to affect it. That gives you such a high quality sound. It's what you're hearing me on right now. Well, you aren't, uh, Tim, but the listeners will be. I just feel like for the money, it's like $69 basically any day on Amazon. Some days you can get it for cheaper than that. There's a knockoff version that's called the Knox, K-N-O-X, and I think you can find it for about 35 Honest to goodness, I think it's one of those deals where the same factories build both. Mm-hmm. It's like they make the... ATR 2100 during the day and they make the knocks at night with the same parts basically and different branding. Either way, you can't go wrong with that microphone and if you're only recording yourself, it is just awesome. The other beauty about that is that it's a USB mic but it's also got an XLR output on it so you can switch back and forth as you need to depending upon your requirements you don't have to switch the mic itself out. You can just change your cable. I have this. This is my mic I use. I've heard with mixed success you can plug into both your Zoom via XLR and your iPad via USB and have a dual output from that mic you absolutely yeah. can that's absolutely true if you have an external recording device that uses xlr plug the mic into that and then you can hook the usb up. so for instance you and i right now i could be speaking to you with my microphone connected to the camera adapter by via usb and also have an external recorder hooked up to the mic via xlr that's not the way that i have it set up in my current situation but i could have done that if i wanted to. and i've run across a problem with skype on ios that just you know for some reason doesn't like usb mics often I don't know if you've run across that or tried to mess around with USB mics on Skype. They don't always love them. I generally have success using them, but that is almost always because I go very simple and I go, it's just the camera adapter straight into the ATR2100 and I don't do anything fancy when I use it. I believe often the hiccups that we find there are due to two things. First of all, the limited device support Mm -hmm. that Apple provides because they don't really approve of all the different ways that we extend that USB support, (laughs) but also the fact that there are very limited power specifications for that device. Unless you stay plugged in all the time, I think people can find a lot of eccentricities when they use it simply because of the power draw. The iPad is capable of providing a lot of power through that USB port, and it can fool us into thinking that we don't always have to stay plugged in. But if you're going to have anything like a microphone or a keyboard or a MIDI operator or anything really plugged into the USB port other than a camera, I would strongly suggest that you go ahead and plug in the power adapter as well. That's the beauty of this new port. Yeah, and I've got a nice big external battery that I can travel with and use away from the wall. So (laughs) solve that. The other device, though, Tim, that I wanted to mention to you here is I do have a digital audio interface that I use when I want to do multiple person recordings. Generally, that only comes down to two. Mm -hmm. Um, For my primary show, my co-host and I recorded for years using this. It's the ART USB Dual Pre. And it's something that a a guy by the name of Sean Smith, he is online as the mobile pro. I want to give him credit here because he turned me on to this device years ago. But it's super cheap. It's about 60 or $70 on Amazon. It is rock solid. You can drop the thing in the bottom of your backpack or your rucksack or whatever. And, and Sean is actually, one of the things that he does is he travels a lot for mission work. And so he's in remote areas trying to capture things on the go. And this is one of those devices that he feels like, and he says he can count on no matter how much it gets bumped around in, in handling or in transportation or by TSA or whatever else it might be. You know, It can run via a 9-volt battery. You can drop a 9-volt battery in it to give it that extra power if you really are in remote recording. But also, it will run via the USB power if you can also plug that camera adapter into power. So that's the way that I record to people most often is I've got that plugged into my iPad. I've got the uh, audio interface plugged into the camera adapter there and then power as well. And then you can go two mics into that one that's a dual 
Pre. And then my microphones, the other microphone that I want to make sure that I mention here, because nobody gives this microphone the due that it deserves, I use, when I'm not using the USB ATR uh, Audio-Technica mic that we already mentioned, the 2100, my XLR mic of choice is called the Pile PD-58. Honest to goodness, this mic is amazing. It is a knockoff of the Shure S58, which is kind of the standard singer's mic. The Shure costs you about $99. The Pile version costs you $16 most of the time on Amazon. Whenever I order one, I always order three. (laughs) I I just go ahead and I order three. Honestly, I give them away like party favors sometimes. Like if somebody comes to record with me and they're like, yeah, I don't have a mic. I send them home with a Pile a lot of times because it didn't cost me that much to begin with. And it's a solid mic. Rugged construction. I've never had one break so far. I've never had one go bad. I've replaced them, but only because I've given them away. And again, the sound quality is really nice as well, particularly for the value. So when somebody tells me they can't afford to podcast, I say, do you have an iPhone or an iPad? And probably they do Mm -hmm. somewhere. Maybe it's not the latest generation. But if they do have one of those devices, then really the expenses are this. If you want to do a solo show, all you need is the camera adapter and the ATR2100. You're out a little less than 100 bucks. If you want to do a double show, you and a buddy, as long as you can do that locally, then it's 30 bucks for the two mics, basically, the two piles. It's about $70 for that audio interface and another 30 or 40 for the camera adapter, and you're set. So a little over $100, $120, And again, that is... High quality audio. I mean, that's yeah. it's, it's really not noticeably different than what you're recording in a radio studio. It's just about the quality of room that you're finding yourself in right. at that point. But those are dynamic mics, so they do a great job of sort of ignoring a lot of the surrounding noise or like if you've got a fan way in the background or something like that. Yeah, I'll sit across the table from someone doing a duo show at, at work. I, I do a couple podcasts for the company I work for at work and... Uh, we're sitting across the table, and uh, there's very little of them on my mic. It's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, that that's my setup. I've got like that written up as a PDF or whatever that I send to my clients a lot of times, and the different people that <laughs> I mean, you know how it is, yeah. Tim. Once you are sort of known as the person that knows how to do these things, you get somebody all the time message you, "Hey, I, I've been thinking about starting that podcasting thing. How do you do that?" So that PDF is my standard answer. I'm like, you need some of this. Go go buy this stuff. Yeah, gotcha. And Ferrite, it's uh, 20 bucks for the full unlock. You can try it out for uh, the free version for free. Uh, and that's an amazing deal, too. Uh, that You know what? Logic's the closest thing on Mac? Is that uh, an apt uh, analogy? or I guess... Realistically, I would say that Reaper is probably the closest analogy. Reaper costs you about 60 bucks, okay. I think, for the full license. Can I ask, what did you uh, move from on Mac? Adobe Audition. So dropping that $20 a month subscription, because I wasn't using all of the Adobe products. I was only using Audition for my business. And I grew up using Audition. Like That's what I started in in radio back when it was Cool Edit Pro a million years ago, it feels like. And then Adobe bought it and evolved it over time. So that was the system that I was familiar with. And I was very trepidatious of coming over. But I had poked at Ferrite over the years. So I wasn't totally blind when I really started to try to make it my actual day-to-day digital audio workstation. There was a uh, transition phase. Absolutely. Gotcha. One question I have is I use a Zoom H6. I feel more comfortable in that. You record directly into Ferrite. What's the benefit in your mind to doing just directly software recording? Primarily, it's cost savings. 
you know, you already have the device. It's just one of those things I've never talked myself into purchasing that external recorder. If I ever did, I think I would probably end up using it, uh, particularly for remote recordings. I would do just what you're doing now instead of using Audio Hijack Pro, honestly, yep. because the quality would be basically the same. And I prefer to use iOS. I just do. So I would use all iOS and the external recorders if I had one. It's just one of those things I haven't streamlined the process. But honestly, Tim, that's why I ended up moving to iOS as a editing platform in the first place, because I looked at my options, my iMac was dying and I looked at my options to replace it for my business. And I knew I preferred to use my iPad anyway. I want to use my iPad more and more. Do I want to spend, you know, a thousand dollars plus on a device that I'm going to love and that I think I can use for my business to do these editing projects? Or do I want to spend $1,500 or more on a device that will be very serviceable, but I might not actually use any more than for work. Yeah. And I just, I made a calculated risk. Uh, it's paid off. It's absolutely paid off. And I'm, I'm very happy with the choice. It's something that I'm going to double down on in the next round of upgrades. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was a cost decision at the end of the day, realistically. Do you see yourself hanging on to that 10 and a half inch iPad and using two iPads? And if you do, what use do you see for multiple iPads in your life? I absolutely think long-term I'll end up with multiple iPads. I think in this particular go-round, this iPad is likely to get retired to my wife, at least in the short mm -hmm. term, and it'll primarily be hers. There will be moments when I'll use both. One of the things is for recordings. So currently, my standard way is to either use the iMac or to use, as I said, the iPhone for that secondary recording device when I'm actually making a VOIP call and, and capturing it. Yep. Well, if I had two iPads, I'd prefer to use that, and that would be the way that I would do it. I would record on one iPad and have the Skype call on the other. Part of me also wants to wait. I do think it's possible that we'll eventually get an actual desktop iOS device, Yep. and when and if that comes, that will be my primary workstation, and then the large iPad will be like most people's laptop. Yeah, absolutely. Back to Farrah, can you walk me through how the multi-track recording works within there? Sure. So the way that, that it's actually captured is it's captured as a split track stereo file. So it's one stereo file and one mic is on the left channel and one mic is on the mm -hmm. right channel. And then in Ferrite, after you are done recording, you can split that out to two mono tracks to make it easier to edit. You can edit it as a stereo file, but it's going to be a lot easier, in my opinion, to split them as monos and then you can cancel all the... Instead of opening a project with that file like you normally would, I hit the little share audio button and the last option is... Uh, convert to mono. And when you click that, you have two options. You can merge the two tracks to a mono file, one mono file, or you can split them to two mono tracks. And that's what I do. Gotcha. And the same thing would work if your interface was a four track interface mm -hmm. or a six track interface, I think now even. And I don't believe the current version of Ferrite supports more than two channels per track. Are you on the beta as well? I am. I'm on the beta. Yeah. I don't want to say too much. Just that Exciting multi-track stuff is coming. I think that's okay to say because he's talked about it publicly on Twitter as well. Canis has. In 2.0, there will be true multi-track support. So, for instance, you have the Zoom. That Zoom will allow for up to four tr four channels, right? Unless you have the H6, that'll allow for up to six channels. Yeah, it does. Okay. Yep. 
So Ferrite will now support that more automatically. In the past, it would still support it, but it was sort of a, a workaround and you had to really know what you were doing to break the tracks down properly. Now it'll be much easier and sort of more automated, even if you're using like a four channel recorder. So that's how you start. I, I just capture it straight into Ferrite, split the tracks out. And then the same thing really works for the files that I get from my clients. My clients that record in Ecamm Call Recorder or that record in Audio Hijack Pro, they're sending me just the same thing that I'm talking about capturing myself. It's a two-channel stereo file and the guest is on one channel and the host is on the other channel. The Skype side of the call is on one channel yeah. and the local is on the other. So same thing. You tell Ferrite to split it into mono and then edit it like okay. that. The big thing that was a breakthrough for me when I moved to Ferrite that was a big cost saver even in those early days when I was having to stumble through editing was something that I had never had before in Adobe Audition. Now afterwards someone has told me that there is sort of a way to get to this in Adobe Audition but they don't call it the same thing. They don't make it as easily surfaceable. But any track that you have in Ferrite, if you click and highlight the track and then touch it again, you get the little pop-up mm -hmm. menu of what you can do to the track. And there's lots of options. One of the options is strip silence. Oh, yes. Godsend. This was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. The idea that I could automatically remove everything below that threshold of sound, and that's editable, by the way. You can change the threshold. And then you can just tighten your entire line from there if you want. That combo of things. Like, again, here's an example. I've got one client. They have three shows a week, and they're all shows about TV. It's just literally like three buddies getting together to talk about a TV rewatch. Do you have any idea how much dead air is in one of those episodes? <laughs> Raw? Like, a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of dead air while people are waiting to make the next point, or is everybody done talking about that scene? Can we move on kind of thing? And I can take all of that out effectively in an automated way, save myself minutes and minutes and minutes, which when you're editing audio, you know if it's one minute of audio, then it's two minutes worth of work to deal with. Okay, so the same amount of time for you. It's about double what? The, the raw audio is mostly <laughs> for, for my edits at least yeah oh yeah if you're actually editing mm -hmm, yeah if you're not just spot checking and processing the audio if you're actually going through and you're taking out ums and ahs and stutters and stops and you're trying to tighten the conversation and produce high quality audio on the end yeah at least two to one and realistically if you're doing anything more than that if you're doing any editorializing or you know like actual like content yeah. reduction then you're talking three to three to one or four yep, to one absolutely so, the other thing that I just love is Levelator is kind of built into Fair right now, which is just uh, was a mind blowing thing when that was added. Oh my goodness! Again, sort of like a little sneak preview in 2.0, you can even use that leveling function on a file before you start editing it. So before you even drop it into your project, you can have it sort of automated to level it, and that makes it a lot more pleasant. Again, whether you're editing with you know headphones or or just the speakers on the iPad, which is pretty pleasant actually. Now, do you have thoughts on this as far as the better of the two workflows? In my mind, doing it as the final thing you do, what I do is I will silent the music tracks and have all the spoken audio be exported as a leveled file. Then I put that back into the project. That way it's like leveling between the two vocal tracks. Is that the better approach or is having each vocal track being independently leveled kind of the better way to go? So in a perfect scenario, your way is the right way. Okay. I say the right way. Your way is ideal. And again, in a perfect world, in any individual track is not going to have a whole lot of variation from you know the beginning to the mm -hmm. end. Any individual track, you ought to set your levels and leave it alone. But what you have happens sometimes, especially with 
you know, client files I find. You've got a guest who doesn't know how to stay in the microphone <laughs> yeah. or who wanders around to talk to their cat while they're also talking to you. Or maybe you have a host who forgets to turn on the right microphone. And so you have a whole track that is sort of lower than it's supposed to be. And yep. there are maybe times when she wanders closer to the laptop. That's something that I've experienced. What I'm saying is... In general, yes, I only worry about leveling the project as a whole, but occasionally, whether it be, sometimes maybe they'll only capture a mono file or a mixed file of the interview. They won't actually capture uh, capture separate tracks. And in that case, it's really handy to be able to knock that Skype side of the thing down automatically without totally ruining the other side. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you my workflow quickly, and I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but the thing that I do with audio generally before I even really bring it into Ferrite, I've started using, there's a third-party plugin, audio plugin, and I know we're going to get to this later maybe with Ferrite, but I found that this works better as a process outside of Ferrite instead of using it on the tracks individually. Mm -hmm. The plugin that I use is called Bruce Free, B-R-U-S-F-R-I. It's made by a developer called Cleve Grand Producteur AB. It's a German company, I believe. They were known for Synths, S-Y-N-T-H-S's, my accent might not allow that word to come out properly but they make you know music synthesizers mm -hmm. basically that's how they started and they've gotten into audio effects in the last few years and they've got some really really good ones Brust free is my favorite one but they've got a great compressor called corve presser as well they've got a de-esser for ios called espresso i think is the name of that one Brust free is the only one that i use with regularity though generally i've knocked off the worst edges of most of my clients' recordings otherwise already in the way that they're capturing their files, so I don't have a lot of terrible DSing to do or something. This is background noise removal? Yes, man, and it works so great for removing the fan. I've got a client that records in Puerto Rico. You can hear birds in the background all the time. Bruce Free will just take it out. It does a really, really great job. Is this Mac only? No, it's Mac or iOS. It works on both sides, and as a matter of fact, if you buy it on iOS, it's way cheaper. I think it's about 20 or $30 on the Mac side. If you buy it on iOS, when I bought it, I think I only paid $9.99 for it. It may be more than that now, but... Oh, this could be a game changer. I've been looking. I've got this audio uh, removal tool app that just doesn't work on iOS. This sounds great. I'm going to look this up. Yeah, download Bruce Free and try it. Like I said, you can run it as a plugin on an individual track or even the project as a whole within Ferrite. I've just found, and maybe it's about the fact that I'm running betas all over the place. I'm running the iOS 12 beta. I'm running the Ferrite beta. Maybe there's a little bit of instability there. Mm -hmm. But I have found that occasionally I'm getting hiccups and when I'm exporting my audio if I'm using Bruce Free. And it's just, you know, as a third-party plugin, Ferrite tells you very openly, hey, look, we don't make it. We can't really support it. There's a general framework for how those things work but the individual plugins it's all up to the plugin developer themselves so this works as a plugin within ferry it's not a separate app download in the app store right it is both. I'm not at all familiar with how the plugin architecture works in Ferrite. That's something new to me. There is a framework that Apple has allowed for audio plugins. And the reason ostensibly they built this was for GarageBand, really, mm -hmm. was that different companies could build an app that would work on your GarageBand project. Well, that works for other audio producers as well. I can't remember the, the file name extension, but it's like an AUP file or something like that, basically. It's an audio plugin unit, I think is what they call it. And is this installed through like iTunes file sharing or is you able to install through the app? Installed through the App Store. You have to go through to the App Store and buy Brust Free directly. Mm -hmm. And it is an actual app. You can run audio through it directly, which is now how I'm using it primarily. However, you can also add it as an effect on any 
track within ferrite itself. It's just that I've found the extra processing there somewhere in the chain currently is causing occasional hiccups in the audio on export. And so to remove that problem, I'm processing the audio for noise removal first, just the individual files, yep. then dropping them into Ferrite to edit the project and not using it as a plug-in on the individual tracks. However, if you have a very simple project, if and the other thing you have to think about is that I'm talking about my Ferrite library is huge. I think I have about 100 gigabytes of files in there or something. I'm kind of the same way because I, I podcast for work as well. I do three shows for my day job so if you've got a long show and it's multi-tracks then running one of these plugins on one of the tracks is going to potentially give you an issue on export okay you're not going to hear the issue most likely while you're editing it's probably not going to crash mm -hmm. and hang on you i haven't experienced that very often but when you export i have experienced with many of these plugins my wife described it as a an audio fart <laughs> so to avoid that again process the audio with those plugins as separate you know, apps basically process the audio first. Think about the way that you use RX6 on the Mac, for instance, when you're working with some of those advanced audio tools there. You'll use Levelator, for instance, as a standalone app to process your audio on the Mac as well. It's a thing people do. Yeah. And some people do that before they edit and some people do it on the final project only or you yep. know, vice versa. Mm -hmm. So yeah, same thing here. Like look at your workflow and see where it might fit in. But in the future, you could imagine as first of all, maybe the operating system is a little bit more stable or you're not running a beta like I am all <laughs> yeah. over the place. And also as the devices become more powerful, you can imagine that those plugins could very easily run as effects within the track in your project. And the beauty of the current way that Ferrite is building itself is that you could save presets for those things. You could save those effects into your templates so that it's standardized. And like every time you load up a new episode of insert show name here, then you'll have all of that stuff just waiting on you. It's really, really amazing the future for audio that they're building. Oh, it's great. I'm going to have Canis on the podcast for the 2.0 launch. We're going to dive deep into all the things that are in 2.0. Excellent. I've been using the beta since it came out, and it was a surprise when it launched for me. And it was like one of the best days of the month. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, all this great stuff. Denoising is going to be a part of that with Baked Within as a uh, first party feature within uh, Canis's uh, Ferrite. Now, I will say this. I have tried the denoiser a few times here, and it is woefully underperforming as compared to Bruce Free. I will say that. Yeah, I sent him some feedback as well. I've had similar experiences. I think I'll tune it over time. To your point, you know, a standalone app could, could definitely be useful in you know producing audio to not just do everything within the one app. It's nice when you can, but it's great when there's a specialist out there, for, for instance. you know. Exactly. Custom keyboard shortcuts, do you do much with that? So I have the, you know, the beauty of Ferrite, I like the way that he's got it set up because you've got the keyboard shortcut choices. So if you, if you're moving from one of the other standard digital audio workstations, you're moving from Audition, you're moving from Logic Pro or Pro Tools, he's got those keyboard shortcuts or as close as he can map it. He's got those already in there. So you can basically use a lot of your muscle memory as you move over. I used the Audition set up for quite a while because I was moving over from Audition. I've tried at different times the standard Ferrite setup. Currently, I am on a custom one, and the reason that I'm on the custom setup is only because I am currently using, most of the time anyway, a 
external keyboard. I bought myself as an experiment, I bought myself a USB gaming keyboard. The one that I have, I spent about, I only spent about $20 on it because I was just, I was sure it wasn't going to work, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work entirely. Not all of the features are supported and I was a little disappointed in some of the big things that it's missing. But the one that I have was from a brand called Deluxe. I bought it on Amazon. It is one of those that fits your palm and it's like a one-handed gaming keyboard sort of thing. (laughs) It's got these giant two red buttons at the bottom that are supposed to be space bars. And I was most excited about those because the standard keyboard shortcut for Ferrite is the space bar is play pause. Sure. And so I thought how great it would be to have a giant play pause button, basically, which is one of the primary things that I would want out of an external keyboard. Their big red buttons don't work. Uh, I cannot make them work <laughs> any way that I've tried on the iPad, however. The volume up and down buttons do work. All of the one, two, three, four, five, six keys at the top work. The function key row does not work as far as I can find. But what I have found is that it fits my hand really well. It's very comfortable and ergonomic to use for long periods of time. And it turns out most of the functions that I'm going to use more than easily map to that one, two, three, four, five, six row. So that's primarily what I'm using. I have a few other shortcuts, some of the more advanced stuff mm-hmm. on the rest of the keyboard itself and the letters. So this is a one-hand gaming controller? Yeah, it is literally a one-hand gaming oh, keyboard. Wow. So like it's got, it doesn't have the full keyboard. It's got like Q-W-E-R. I'll send you a picture of it. I'm so excited because I've mapped uh, you know, the keyboard to be able to be operated with one hand, of course. But I have to be sitting down mostly. This would enable me, I think, to be in my standing desk and be comfortable with that. And I don't know about you. I find that what you want is you want one hand on the keyboard for the handful of functions that you would need to jump down to like the shortcut bar for or something or have to go to the contextual menu. Yeah. And then otherwise you want one hand on the device. When you're editing a lot of audio, you're not always making cuts or changes where the audio is playing. You're listening for things that you'll have to change in depth, but you're also looking ahead at like large gaps in the audio that you can close or like here's clearly an um or here's a cough or whatever and to to remove those. And I could do that with my right hand while I'm using the keyboard with the left hand. So that's why I love this gaming keyboard for that. Right, yeah. So my setup is where I have a row of keys where I'm able to jump the playhead to both the next and the previous break in the audio clip. And then I have a keyboard shortcut to select everything after that playhead. And then I have another keyboard shortcut to move all that audio to wherever the playhead is. So I'm able to make cuts and just push all the audio to that batch that I just got rid of kind of thing really easily. And this sounds like this handheld keyboard could enable me to do that in a different ergonomic setup, which would be really nice. And this might seem silly when I say it out loud. Every time that I've said some version of this, I always feel like, you know, you're 36 years old. This is sort of an old man thing to say. I do look at my life and I think, okay, this is my job. I mean, this is what I want to do. And so I'm going to do it every day, all day, basically, for the rest of my life, theoretically, or, or yeah. the vast majority <laughs> of it anyway. One of the big beauties of moving to the iPad, in my opinion, is the fact that I can do it in so many ways. I use the Logitech Slim Combo keyboard and case. And so like, I can snap it into that sort of, it looks like a laptop sitting on my desk, and I can use it in that very traditional way. I can take the keyboard off altogether and just use my hand and hold it like a tablet and walk around the house and work on it. I can use the pencil even. I do occasionally use the pencil just for a different feel and just for a different experience to break up 
the physical monotony and also literally the wear and tear on your body. I know that seems silly compared to digging ditches or something. No, yeah, that's that's fair. But it is. RSI is a real thing. So like I don't want to get it, <laughs> you know? With the pencil edits, I've found it works best for me at least if it's just a monologue show of one person. I'm not dealing with multiple tracks. It works great for that to be at cutting and selecting audio and all that. Have you found you're able to use it pretty well if you're dealing with multiple speakers and tracks? No, I strongly agree with you. I've got a couple of uh, like solo client shows, basically like uh, vets or real estate agents or something that are just giving information. And those shows are wonderful to edit with the pencil. They're wonderful to edit, like even walking around. Yeah. Truthfully, it's one of the beauties, again, of the iPad. With the slim combo, it's got like that kickstand on it. So I sort of put the kickstand over my left arm and I wear the iPad on my arm almost while I'm using the pencil in my right hand to mark up the audio and work through it. And again, it's just, it's a very pleasant experience Mm -hmm. you know and when you're doing this all day (laughs) so much of anything like why would you not want it to be more pleasant and sort of novel no agreed yeah i wonder if there could be things to get adjusted within the apple pencil how that works to make that better i think part of my problem is just i'm cutting this audio and i'll get stuff out of sync if i don't do it right with the pencil it's much easier with the keyboard to make sure stuff isn't getting out of out of sync when i do my adjustments i think so far that Right does have some great pencil support, and the iOS in general supports the pencil very well, but it is not ideal for very many things, and there are so many things that Ferrite is capable of doing that the pencil makes more complicated. It's, it's as you said, it's a limited use case, but when you find those times when you can use it, it is, it is really nice to use. I look at the crayon that Logitech introduced that works for the lower-cost iPad that they sort of introduced for the education market. Yeah, imagine the third generation iPad Pro would support that. You can't buy it if you're not an education customer yet, Mm -hmm. but I look forward to these potential larger iPhones that are coming this year, for instance. The rumor is that we're going to get like a iPhone 10 style device that goes all the way up to six and a half inches. If you have a six and a half inch phone, I can't imagine the argument for why you don't want a stylus support on that when you have such a great stylus as the Apple Pencil. However, if you're going to have Apple Pencil support on that phone, why would you want an Apple Pencil as large as the one that we have today? So (laughs) I'm hopeful that we get a second generation that is a little smaller, and I would also love for it to take on some of the new features that that Crayon has. For instance, the Crayon has a button. Now, right now, I think the Crayon's button is only used for connection so that you don't have to plug it into the device to sync and connect it to an individual iPad. And so, like, basically anybody can use anybody's Crayon. You can just hand it, click the button in proximity. Yeah, it's great, because right now I have to pair my pencil between my two iPads as I switch between them. I imagine if Apple is going to put a button on a pencil, that it does more than just turn it on and off. And I think to myself, shortcut buttons, things like being able to access cut, copy, paste, things like that with with a simple click or a double click. Like There are lots of ways, not just for audio editing, but for any markup that could very quickly be even more advantageous if it had one or two other input forms on the pencil. So I look forward to the future and think that maybe there's more there. Yeah, I almost wonder you saying that. Tap and hold is something that we have to do on iPads, and some people complain about that, kind of yet the hold to have that start. Maybe you hold down the button and it bypasses that time delay to do that, stuff like that. Something. There are a million ways you can use it, but if there's not a button there to begin with, then we can't use it at all. Yeah. You know? So back to Ferret. You mentioned you have a huge library. Do you 
do much with the archiving and do you store your archives someplace else or do you just keep it as a running list of all your projects or how do you deal with file management for podcasts? So I keep my intros and outros, my theme music for all my shows, my standard ads and all that sort of stuff. I just leave those down there as, as files. But mm-hmm. yes, for any individual project, every single episode that I do, I make an archive of that project and I export that archive out to Google Drive is where okay. all my long-term gotcha. storage is. I've got a big backup folder and then individual folders for each show. That's where my editing session goes. And the beauty of that is, and this is, again, something that I didn't have when I was using Audition. In Audition, you can save a session and you can save the templates, but there's no way to easily zip that all up in an automated fashion and like sort of store it away. Mm-hmm. Whereas it was so simple, you share art. And now even Ferrite has added the ability to share the archive. You don't have to, used to be you'd make an archive and then you'd have to send it somewhere. Yeah. Now you can click the share archive button. It makes the archive, doesn't save it in your library at all, but exports it out to whatever app you want to send it to. That is such a time saver for me. What happens is if a client ever comes back and says, oh, Joel, we missed this or, hey, there was an audio hiccup. You know, maybe I did an export and and there was a crash somewhere that I didn't notice, but there's a little audio for it. So I've got to go back to the source and start again. I've already deleted those project files, but that's okay. I go to Google Drive. I download the archive load it back into Ferrite and immediately I'm back up and running and not just back up and running, but back up and running with full history undo. Right. Yeah. (laughs) What other operating system can you say that on? Like it's just not available on the Mac. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Tags. Do you use those within Ferrite? I am not much of a tag person. I don't know if you are. So I go through these fits in my life when I say I'm going to become really organized and I'm going to tag everything. And every couple of years, Apple decides that they're going to focus on tags in one or both of their operating systems. And so that also ignites me sometimes. I've never used them in Ferrite. I think I have maybe one thing in my entire library tagged. Yeah, me too. I use the search function a ton. I search by titles, names, you know, my file names or my project names. I, I find that that generally is not an issue. Yeah, because I have naming conventions, all have music, if it's music, all have ad in front of it's an ad. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned effects and plugins earlier. Are there any other effects that you use within Ferrite? Any other automation tools that are within there that you utilize? The built-in noise gate is pretty decent, and I have used that in the past. Mm-hmm. Same thing with their built-in compressor. That is absolutely serviceable. And again, if you're a hobbyist or something like that, like you can use the built-in compressor effect in your projects. And unlike third-party plugins, the ones that are actually there within Ferrite work 100% of the time. I've never had a failure or a hiccup on the export with them. What's your use case for the, the noise gate? What's your use case for that one? Basically, uh, things that I haven't used BrustFree on or times in the past before I knew about BrustFree. Generally now for clients, I don't use the noise gate. I'll try to use the actual noise removal. Gotcha. Sometimes I've used it for crosstalk. If you've got two people in one room, the strip silence function didn't work properly because they were getting a lot of crosstalk. You can use the noise gate and that'll cut basically all of it out without really harming the voice gotcha. of your speaker. Uh, that's one yep. easy way to do that. I use BrustFree a ton, B-R-U-S-F-R-I. I use a couple of others made by that same company. I mentioned them earlier, but I'll mention them here again. Corv Presser, K-O-R-V-E Presser. And then the other one is called Espresso, and that's a, a de-esser plug-in. And all of those, by the way, work just like BrustFree do. They work as actual external apps. You can just load the audio therein and process it and then export that audio to wherever you want to use it. Or they work as plugins within Ferrite. So for instance, I've told people in the past, clients of mine, okay, you're not going to edit your audio, so you don't need Ferrite. You don't need to learn how to use Ferrite. 
but you could process your audio, whether you're sending it to me or somebody else, and you could do some of that noise removal just automated with these tools for pennies on the dollar compared to the traditional plugins on the Mac side or the PC side mm-hmm. and save yourself some money in the production or save yourself the the time and effort of hiring it out. You know, if that's all you want to do is do a little bit of noise removal, buy yourself the $10 plugin and get it done. Yeah. Now moving to podcasting CMSs, do you have a favorite one that's iPad friendly that you like to work with? Thankfully, since that, that change in the OS where Safari can access the file picker, yep. really all of them I found are fairly friendly. The one that I'm going to call out here, not as friendly, but but unfriendly, is Squarespace. And oh, I love Squarespace. Yeah. I use them for my own website hosting. But Squarespace is just impossible. On Safari, it's completely unusable. Mm-hmm. And their blog app that they use is super limited. For instance, the big thing that podcasters are going to want to do is you're going to want to take your embed code from your media host, and you're going to want to stick that into a blog post on your website. That is like the number one thing that podcasters are going to do on a regular basis with their website. And you cannot do that from an iPad in any way that is reliable or consistent. I have gotten it to work a couple of times by trying to fool Safari into thinking that I'm on a desktop and I guess just being <laughs> lucky, <laughs> but I can't make it happen on a regular basis and you can't count on it at all. And so today still, if you're asking me what I have to farm out to a Mac, that's what I have to farm out. When I, I have got two clients that are on Squarespace and all my own sites are on Squarespace personally. And when I want to set up the blog posts, I have to do it on Safari on a desktop or laptop browser and then I can switch over and finish yeah. things in the blog app of iOS. Is WordPress your go-to website platform on iPad? WordPress works better. That's not saying much. <laughs> is there a best one? What is the best one that you've run across? There's honestly not. Just because there are companies that have taken the Squarespace model of where they s- sort of squeeze together the worlds of website hosting. Wix is sort of a smaller one. There's even some smaller companies that that are really app first. Like there's one that I saw the other day, Layla or Leela. Mm-hmm. And those look great. They have a lot of the great features, but then their website products are not full featured enough to to be usable by really anybody. I mean, the beauty of WordPress is that it can be your blog or it can be your business, right? And Squarespace is absolutely at that level. It can be your blog or it can be your business and anywhere in between. In my opinion, those other services, the ones that have been more app-friendly, are definitely not at that level. They can be your blog. Yep. They could be maybe your like restaurant hour posting, but that's about it. Yeah. They're not a full-featured website. Yep. It's your digital business card. So until either Squarespace gets off their haunches, and I'm honestly, as much as they're plugged into the podcasting space, how do they not get Mm -hmm. this? How I know I'm not the only one that rants at them about it on a regular basis. No, yeah. They advertise on Apple Podcasts and, you know, that are heavily iOS focused. and My problem with WordPress is twofold, though. First and foremost, to me, WordPress is just far too technical in general. Mm-hmm. It's just there's too many technical hurdles to really use it and use any amount of the power that it has available for the average person that is needing a website. Yeah. Unless you're going to hire it out, I feel like you're going to get yourself in trouble with WordPress. The second part is sort of of a like. WordPress is so easily targeted by hackers and different malicious actors, and unless you're going to pay 
pay for a managed WordPress domain where somebody is taking care of, of your updates and your security maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. Or WordPress.com, I think, is the other one, right? Yeah, but see, even that, that is sort of its own managed domain in, in a way. Like, you're going through them. It is, yep. And you don't have full access to plugins and stuff in there. Embedding, embedding right, code, right. for instance. So, you can't embed uh, audio players, I don't think. So there's trade-offs on all of these options, in my opinion. This is the reason why there continues to be opportunity in the space, right? It's the reason why different companies rise up and all of a sudden get $40 million worth of VC money out of the blue because people see that there is a market to be served here and nobody's doing it perfectly yet. Besides website management, is there anything else you still return to your Mac to do? A little bit of recording every now and again. And then the other thing is I don't have any other device that has a screen that large. So my project management and my external brain is Trello and I love it on the iPad and on the iPhone and I love that it is so mobile friendly but I also love that I can look at it on my 27 inch iMac and it looks like I've got my calendar laid out in front of me and my whole week and I can really see things and understand projects on a bigger scale so I feel like that's an opportunity that Apple's missing there they can upsell me I'm willing to pay several hundred more dollars than the device that I'm currently holding if they would sell me a bigger screen yeah it's curious I don't think we'll ever get external touchscreen support on iOS that'd be amazing if we did but a standalone huge iPad uh, that's like permanently plugged in would be something that uh, would be cool. I do feel like there's a possibility down the road. Maybe they don't ever make an actual like a 20-inch desktop iPad, but maybe they do make a docking system of some sort that would allow actually maybe even an external touch screen. Like yeah. I, I could see where you park your iPad in front of an easel type device that you could stand up or lay down a little bit like the surface studio or something. And the real brains of the thing is the iPad itself actually. But uh, when you want to use those desktop functions, you've got this this larger palette available. Anyway, I think there's definitely a market there. Uh, Microsoft continues to sell into it. I'm intrigued every time Microsoft comes out with a new device like that. I'm like, could I stand Windows or could I hack it and run Mac? You know, the software. I love the hardware, but they don't have the apps I love. Like, there's no Ferrite for uh, Surface. No, there's no Ferrite for Surface. It's not just Ferrite. I like the way Mac works. Yeah, I like the way it's organized. I like their design choices. I enjoy it. And it turns out that I like their choices for iOS even more than Mac OS. And whereas Microsoft, it feels like is melding those two worlds together better. And maybe it's just because they're doing it on a smaller scale. They're serving to a smaller portion of the market than Apple's trying to do. But I, I you know, I don't know. I, either way, I look over there with, with wistful eyes on a regular basis. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what the future brings. Anything else we have not talked about that you want to just talk about real quickly? Or No, man, I I, I know we probably went longer than, than uh, you, you normally go. I appreciate the, the conversation. I'll just say this. You can find basically everything that I do at my Squarespace website, propodcastingservices.com. And you mentioned iPadpodcasting.com as well. You can find that website that redirects to a teachable course that I've set up for the way that I do it. And I will just give you a little tease. I am currently overhauling the thing to reflect Ferrite 2.0. So in particular, the way that I've done file management in the past is going to be drastically overhauled and changed and streamlined in a lot of ways, thanks to the new template function and feature of Ferrite 2.0. So look forward to that. Maybe don't go buy it now. There'll be a sale coming soon uh, showing the fact that the 2.0 of my own course is coming out soon as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Joel, for your time. And yeah, I'm excited to see all the 2.0 updates and you're probably hard at work making sure all the courses are ready for that. And yeah, iPadpodcasting.com. 
Tom, Joel Sharpton, thanks so much for your time again. One final question. What's the podcast that you like people to subscribe to if you had one to, to sh- uh, shout out for? Probably the one that the most of your listeners here would get the most value out of is Always Listening. Always Listening Podcast Reviews. We've done a couple hundred episodes total. My buddy Josh and I would review podcasts. We did that for several years. He's sort of semi-retired now. He comes out of the or into the closet every now and again for a recording, but primarily now you'll hear just me, and what I'm trying to do is showcase not only shows that I love and that I find are doing a great job, but also what's replicable about what what they're doing right for other producers of podcasts. So if you're looking for another great show, that's a good show for you. But also if you're looking to make your show better, always listening podcast reviews. Great. Thanks so much, Joel. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to this episode of iPad Pros. You can find the show notes over at iPadPros.net. You can send your feedback to me at iPadProsPodcast.gmail.com. If you email a voice memo, I'd be happy to include your audio in a future episode. I'm on Twitter at iPad Pros Podcast. And as mentioned at the top of the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could support me over at patreon.com slash iPad Pros. Thank you for your time and attention today. Talk to everyone again real soon.